Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're talking with Michael McRobbie. Michael is the interim provost of Indiana University, who on July 1st will become IU's president. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348, or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Welcome back. Pleasure to be here, Bob. <laughs> wearing a new hat this new time. Hat. <laughs> well, about to be wearing yeah. a new hat. About to be wearing a new hat. Right. Well, thank you. Michael was here with us um, after he became provost. Interim. I guess that interim title sort of stuck with you until it, it something has, else yes. happened. Yeah. And uh, now just uh, about – I think it's 50 days before you become president. I'm not yeah. quite counting it down by the day, but it's something like that. Actually, I, I think about six to seven weeks. Yeah. I, I sh- I'm not naming names, but it was somebody else who was counting it down uh, <laughs> that mentioned the 50 days to me today. Um, so I want to ask first uh, in a general sense, what, what uh, are you doing now and what will you be doing for the next 50 days to prepare yourself for the, the next task, the next job? Well, I – my appointment was announced now, what was it, about nine weeks ago. And I, for for most of that period, I've been um, uh, out on the road. Uh, I've done what I've been referring to as a sort of listening and learning tour of the, of the, of the state. Of course, I know that all of our institutions around the state uh, fairly well and some of the places where we have other facilities, I know them, I know them all fairly well. But I thought it was important to, to visit all those places um, in my role as the, the president-elect uh, to to meet with uh, with faculty, with staff, with students, with business and community leaders, and others in all of those uh, cities and uh, at all of our campuses, uh, to give the, them some sense of what were going to be the major priorities for me, but in particular to hear from them what were the things that we were doing well, what were the things we could improve in, uh, what were uh, the, the areas that they thought should be the priorities for me, given that uh, my time is obviously going to be uh, spread uh, between all of our uh, various campuses and so on. And, uh, of course, the, most of my time will be on the, the two major campuses. And uh, and so I found that a, a very useful exercise, um, uh, to say the least. Uh, probably over that period, I think I gave, geez, I lost count, but something like uh, 60 or 70 speeches. Uh, okay. I, I met with uh, and, and shook uh, thousands and thousands of hands, um, uh, met with a, a number of very uh, prominent community leaders and uh, a lot of students and so on as well, um, did numerous press conferences, met with uh, your colleagues in the media all around the state as well. And I think that's that's been very helpful to both uh, let people get to know me a little bit better and then to hear from people as to what was what was on their mind. So a lot of my time has been, been put into that. Then I think the second thing is um, obviously at the moment I'm the, the, university, the provost for this campus uh, with a series of other responsibilities university-wide. And so what I'm now doing is disengaging myself from those various responsibilities. One of the things I have to do, for example, is replace myself. I, uh, <laughs> I'm in the process of uh, appointing uh, um, a new provost. I have a search underway that uh, that uh, Professor Fred Kate is chairing for me uh, to identify a provost. I'm hoping to have someone in place by, by the 1st of July or very soon thereafter. And I have one more dean. All the deans that I had to replace when I took over the provost position, I think, as you know, five of those are now in place. And we're in the final stages of the search for a dean of university libraries. And I hope to get that at least an appointment made um, while I'm still provost, if that that person may not be here quite by then. And a whole series of other issues. I, I've been um, uh, looking at the the structure of, of both the senior executive of the university. Um, I think there'll be be making a few uh, changes there, though Though I, I really haven't made any final decisions, plus just issues like uh, the structure of my office, the, the key people who will be supporting me um, in that role. And then I guess the, the other thing I've done is I've been um, in getting uh, uh, briefings on, on uh, from par- about parts of the university uh, that really haven't been areas that I've been directly involved in, even though I've had, uh, what, what is it now, three major jobs in the university. Uh, and I've been meeting with President Herbert uh, pretty much weekly, sometimes more than weekly, um, to have briefings and discussions with him on a series of um, uh, other major parts of the university. That's 
that's probably about, I don't know, two-thirds complete or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty much what I've, what I've been doing. And then in between all that, trying to do all my normal duties. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this hour is going to go very fast. I, I, I think so, about, too. Yeah, <laughs> we, we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> I, I do want to, I, I want to follow up uh, first, if you don't mind. No, go ahead. Um, about what you've been hearing when you've gone around the state. And, you know, you don't have to give me the, the, the full range of what you've been hearing, but have there been any surprises when you've gone to various parts of the state about the perception of IU or what people think we do well here or not so well here? Well, I, I'm, I was really – I really have been um, impressed and, and it's something again that I was, was aware of but it really emphasized for me uh, the, the extraordinary affection in which pretty much all the citizens of the state seem to hold IU in. I mean it, it really is – it really is quite remarkable. This, this to all the citizens of the state really seems to be – the flagship institution in the state. It has the name and it is uh, Indiana University. And uh, that that point just gets emphasized over and over again. Um, uh, it's astounding how many alums are out there. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be probably, uh, this is purely impressionistic, but it would seem that certainly more than every second person, you know, three out of every four or more seem to be IU alums, multiple alums, their children were alums or at IU and so on. <laughs> it's uh, the, 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 the the way in which this university pervades the state is 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 really quite remarkable, and hence just how important it is in the state. I mean, that was that was driven home over and over and over again uh, to me as well. I think also um, there was a, a, a perception that that um, uh, that our our message had was was maybe hadn't been for a while anyway, maybe not as clear as as people thought it it should be. But I think there was a lot of praise for for what we have done in the life sciences in terms of the clarity with which we have focused our message in that area over the last you know year year and a half or so as well and that that came through um, again even talking to members of the legislature about about that that came through uh, uh, pretty well as uh, as well I think uh, a third point would probably be um, we, we talk about the importance of, of economic development um, uh, there is probably more going on out there than than people appreciate that the university is engaged in, and certainly, as you know, that's one. We may talk about that later. That's going to be one of my priorities: uh, is, is is continuing to ramp up our activities in that area. But it is surprising how much is going on out there that that, that really maybe is not as well known as it should be. When you talk about uh, economic development, I assume you're referring to incubating businesses that right. are. Right, Shoot, right. Offshoots from university based, projects. Right, right, either based on research or based on services that, that are provided by members of the university faculty and others. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. Our phone number is 855-0811-877-285-9348. And the email address is noon at indiana.edu. Michael McRobbie is our guest today. He will become president of IU on July 1st. All right. Here's an email that came in prior to the show. In a New York Times article by the Associated Press on May 9th, 2007, Amnesty International accused China of supplying arms to Sudan that are being used to fuel the violence in the Darfur region in violation of a United Nations embargo. A photo of three Chinese Fantan fighters, fighter jets on the tarmac of an airport in southern Darfur was also in the report. In light of these developments, do you still plan to allow the Chinese government to place the Confucius Institute at IUPUI. The institute will receive substantial funding from the Chinese government. If we accept these funds and allow the Confucius Institute at IUPUI, what kind of statement does this make about IUPUI's stance on Sudan and the genocide occurring there? Are we willing to partner with a government that funds the genocide in Sudan? Thank you for your time in answering my questions. Well, uh, no one can can talk away or pardon the uh, the horrific uh, things that are happening in, in Sudan um, at the moment. Um, but uh, as I've said a number of times, we, we are an educational institution. Our principal missions are education and, and uh, research. And our relationships with um, foreign universities have always been based on um, what uh, we can do in those areas of of education and research. I think even during the um, the darkest days of <clears throat> of the Cold War, when when the Soviet Union was not a pleasant place to be, we had uh, uh, good relationships with a number of universities there. And I think there were at least attempts to have um, uh, good relationships with uh, the 
some of the universities um, in the People's Republic of China when it was under um, uh, the, the madness of Mao's rule. Um, uh, to me, uh, our, our close relationships with the most progressive parts of countries overseas is, is I think, the biggest contribution that we can make in some ways uh, to the the ultimate um, a greater liberalisation and greater democratisation of uh, of some of those countries. So um, I, I think the, the certainly the the one institution or the one area you would not want to penalise um, for the perceived um, transgressions of the foreign policy of, of certain countries are the educational relationships that exist between those countries. Okay. Uh, And these next three questions are a lot closer to home. Um, These are three questions about privatizing university jobs, and I'll let you take them one at a time. Um, Number one, will you ask the trustees to amend their bylaws to include conflict of interest guidelines before another privatization decision is made? Um, I I just – I'd have to uh, just not comment on that because I'm not certain exactly what's being referred to and and, uh, what what the issue is there. I know there are conflict of interest rules in place and um, I'm not aware of any reason to believe that they're not uh, functioning in a satisfactory uh, manner, but there may be some issue that I'm not aware of there. All right. Number two, will you require bidders for privatized jobs to have non-discrimination policies that include sexual orientation and to offer domestic partner benefits? Well, well, again, I mean, that's a level of detail that I just haven't been involved in. I mean, I'm assuming that that, that there would be uh, certain um, requirements like that in place because I understand them to be part of uh, federal law. But uh, but again, I, I, I really can't comment in detail. It would be some. I mean, I could obviously get an answer to to the caller on that uh, on that point um, uh, if uh, if there's an interest in doing so. Okay. Uh, and the third question is: Will you ask appropriate units of IU to research the liability and the public safety issues involved when the university lacks oversight over the background checks and rechecks conducted by private employers on campus? Well, again, it's a level of detail. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I suggest you probably need uh, you know Terry Claybex here to answer some of those questions. But I mean, I can I can refer those to to Terry in his office for for, for a response. It's just a level of detail I'm just not uh, haven't been involved in. Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks thanks for that. Um, there are several things that you've pointed to. You know, as as you've in the when you were provost. Actually, this was I, I was at a, a presentation you gave to the Bloomington Rotary Club, and you you laid out a vision for Indiana University that. I assume hasn't this was uh, hasn't changed in the last uh, few <laughs> the last couple of months and, and you know the first uh, question was about relation the relationship with China but you have talked you talked a great deal one of the seven points key points you made was about greater inter- internationalization of the university and how you, know, you want IU to be competing for the very best students the very best faculty um, that was one point but um, there were several other things I'm going to take a, a couple of the other ones one is you talked about increasing diversity could you expand on the need to increase diversity on campus and what you hope to do in that area well, uh, the, the, there's um, the, the trustees passed a resolution last about a year ago, a little under a year ago, um, that uh, basically enjoins us to increase um, the number of minority students uh, to double the number of minority students by the year uh, or the academic year 2013-14, t- uh, um, and uh, and this obviously includes um, African Americans and Latinos and. Uh, and other Asian American students as well. Um, this is uh, an area that we've already put considerable resources into. Um, we, we may get onto the question of uh, affordability and so on, but I could just mention now that we have put a, uh, about uh, $10 million of new funding into uh, student uh, aid, for, uh, that is uh, student financial aid in the university and a significant part of that has gone towards programs that uh, particularly cater for minority students. So for example, the the, the state's 21st century uh, scholars program which is a program that that provides the, the total cost of tuition for uh, students from very low income uh, backgrounds. We have put in place um, our 21st Century Scholars Covenant and what that does is provide the additional funding for the total cost of attendance, so basically all the cost of living expenses involved in attending IU as well as tuition. So what it means is for for a young student from a very low-income background who who works hard, achieves good grades – 
they can come to IU with all their expenses covered, completely covered um, at, uh, at IU. Now, what's important here is that that program uh, is about 50% minority students. Now, we catered for, we, we um, budgeted for uh, a certain number of students that we thought would uh, would come through that program. Um, we've we've actually been overwhelmed. We're going to probably get about twice as many students coming through the program as we originally uh, budgeted for, which is, uh, I think, a great thing. So based on the figures that I'm seeing, our minority enrolments will certainly um, increase. And, and and part of the motivation of this is 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 really to, to ensure that we have the right programs in place to enable the best students in the state, irrespective of their financial circumstances, irrespective of their minority status, but the best students in the state to attend IU. And that's really at the heart of what we do. And at the same time, it's important for the, for the university to, in a sense, reflect the greater diversity of the American community and the American society here as well. And it's, it's incumbent upon us to ensure that, that our programs uh, achieve that. And that's what, we, what, that's what the new programs we'll put in place will, will, um, uh, will do. And, uh, and there are some further announcements that I think um, I hope to make with uh, Vice President Charlene Elms, who uh, who's, uh, has a major responsibility in this area in the next couple of months as to some further things we're doing to help uh, achieve that goal. Okay. We have our first phone call today. Let's go to John on the phone. John? Hello, President-elect McGravy. It's nice to uh, speak with you, and best of luck to you as you, as you start your new role at the university. Thank you very uh, much. Um, as an alumnus of uh, the Kelly School of Business in Bloomington, I, I'm interested uh, to, to know um, there's kind of a duality of uh, this position, kind of a, a, if we look at the you know, the English monarchy versus the queen versus the prime minister, kind of the head of state versus the head of government role. If you had to, to, to place a priority, um, do, you view your, do you view your role uh, as more of a head of state in, in kind of the, uh, the external affairs component in the friend and fundraising role, or do you, do you view it as more of a kind of a head of government uh, in, in uh, dealing with the internal affairs and the academic uh, mission of the school, and uh, I'll take my uh, answer offline. And uh, again, best of luck. <laughs> that's actually that's a wonderful question. <laughs> that's a wonderful um, question. <laughs> I, I, I could I could uh, try to respond to that at length. Actually, um, I, let, let me let me say let, let me try and answer it this way. Firstly, let me say that for somebody who who grew up under a parliamentary system and has lived here for over ten years and is very familiar, intimately familiar with the political system in this country. I, I, I've seen um, both systems, and, and, I, and I, I, I can see the sort of strengths and weaknesses of, of both systems. But um, I, I think the I think the presidency in a university, in fact, is a little different to both, and has maybe certain features of both. But 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 I think the key thing about the presidency is that is is that it has a significant external component to it uh, that is representing. Uh, the the university's interests uh, with the with the state, with the legislature, with with alums, with the uh, with the, go- the government, with the governor and his uh, and his office, uh, with our federal delegation, with uh, the federal funding agencies, and and with um, the great um, uh, all the all the principal donors who support uh, the university as well, and so so it has that that very substantial external component, and I think internally. Uh, it the, the presidency in some ways has to rise above uh, a lot of the the levels of detail that um, that will uh, tend to be the major focus of attention uh, of the of the campuses to see things in the longer term strategic uh, context as well. So so um, I, I don't think there's a precise uh, political analogy for the, the role of a president in university. It's, it's a pretty unique kind of job. We, we love our. Listeners, they ask great questions. Always a great question. As kind of a follow-up to that, you know, in, in Indiana University always, always uh, holds up Herman Wells as kind of the gold standard great, of, great man, of leaders. Great man. And I wonder if you're if you've looked at his the way he ran the university and and taken any uh, cues from from his uh, history of leadership. Uh, I have. Um, I, I, I read his uh, autobiography, um, and I, I did know him. I'm, I met with him a number of times, and had the pleasure of hearing him uh, uh, speak. Really, really, he was just reliving some anecdotes about various things. But, but, um, and I've heard innumerable stories from people um, 
and the ones I find most interesting are those who actually worked with them. I, I think there's, I, I, I think there's a view of of, of uh, Herman Wells that 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 he was this um, avuncular Uncle Herman, the Santa Claus, in some ways. But I think he was also uh, uh, he was a great visionary. Um, every page of his autobiography. Uh, is is about his vision for the university and change and the next thing he wanted to do and so on and so on, and and sometimes people have a way of holding up the the past as it was embodied in Herman Wells as an obstacle to change. And what I always say is, you only have to read Wells mm. to to understand that if were he alive today, he would be somebody who would be looking for 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 all the key new directions that we would go in. But at the same time, he would vigorously. Um, defend uh, the, the 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 great sort of fundamental academic principles on which the the university is is based. I I, I don't in some ways I don't think we've the full story of 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 Herman Wells has yet been told. I know there's a biography underway on him. That is, you know, how did he really get things done, and and uh, uh, what what was the what was the way in which uh, he made things happen? And I'm I'm looking forward with great interest to to hear to hear more about that. But one of the things I really admired about him was that was that he he understood that at the end of the day, the critical thing for the university was a great faculty, mm-hmm. and and that and that the thing that he most had to focus on and concentrate on was the attraction, uh, the recruitment, that is, and the retention of a great faculty and do everything he could uh, to, um, to, to, get the, to attract the best minds to Indiana University, to keep them here, to nourish them, to ensure they flourished and so on. And, and that is everything else follows from that. You can't educate students unless you have a great faculty. You can't do great research unless you have a great faculty. And all the other things that we're so proud of, justifiably, I mean, our great alumni base, our great uh, history and athletics and so on, all of that follows from the fact that we are first and foremost a great educational and research institution. I have, I have two things I want to ask in terms of follow-up to, to John's great question and Mary Catherine's great question. One is about you – know, you talked about um, – you know the external um, responsibilities that you're going to have, which which means that you have to have key people in place. You just talked about hiring five people. You just talked about how you need a great faculty. Could you offer any insights into uh, what really stands out for you? What are you looking for when you're hiring key people for roles in the university? The people that are going to carry out the uh, presumably the vision that you and the board of trustees have. Oh, I, I don't think there's any secret there, Bob. <laughs> you look, you look for, uh, you look for intelligence. Uh, you look for ability. You look for vigor. Um, you look for people who are sort of tireless, and uh, uh, and you look for people who um, are not shrinking violets either. You, you want you want people who are prepared to uh, who who can analyze the situation quickly in depth um, and. But objectively and dispassionately, and then who can argue for a certain course of action uh, with um, you know a skill and tenacity. But uh, at the end of the day, if the decision goes against them, they're they're, they're prepared to be you know, good team members and and uh, get on board. But um, I, I think uh, that um, you know high people with good analytical skills, or intelligence, uh, who um, can uh, can help. Um, an organisation reason its way to the right conclusion. I mean, I really, I, I've said it a number of times, but but I think um, I, I say that in dialectic lies truth, and by which I mean, you know, the more people you can get arguing through an issue, uh, tends to uh, great improve greatly the chances of reaching the right uh, the right mm-hmm. conclusion. But you need the right kinds of people who can do that. Okay. And then the second part of this is is about getting things done, because you know you mentioned you know how the book about how Herman Wells got things done. And, and I think that when when you were named as the, the provost, the interim provost, I think the trustees talked a lot about needing a change agent, somebody who could get things done. Universities are probably not known for moving very swiftly and changing very swiftly. It's a great big organization. So how do you get things done as quickly as you do? Well, I, I've said, you've you probably heard me say this a number of times in various speeches I've given, but but universities are remarkable institutions. Um, there's there's the only other institution I think in the history of human civilization that has lasted longer than universities is the Catholic Church, um, and and so people think that universities can't change, but the history of universities is that they is that they constantly change, 
Um, the way in which they change, the rate at which they change, I mean, that can vary from place to place. But, but, but see, coming from um, another part of the world, um, one of the things that, that, that one sees about the American university system is that uh, it is extraordinarily quick at being able to change compared to universities elsewhere in the world. Um, mm-hmm. Relatively speaking, it is, it is re- remarkably uh, uh, competitive in terms of how it, how it can change. And, and I, I can talk at length about that, but I, will, but I could come back to that maybe. Um, but, but I think in terms of um, uh, affecting change, again, one has to be able to um, convince and persuade the faculty about a certain course of action and the faculty, the deans, and the and the departmental heads, and so on, that a certain course of action is uh, is the <clears throat> is the right one, and uh, uh, and to uh, get uh, the faculty on side. I mean, I, I think um, I think at the end of the day, uh, it, it, universities are not corporations; they are not businesses, and uh, uh, they cannot be governed and run in the same way. They they um, they are to a significant degree run by consensus and collaboration and cooperation and that's I mean that that is widely said but it is but it is true and that's the only way you can really make a university function mm-hmm. one more follow-up to that uh, you've got a reputation already as being kind of a 24/7 guy who's uh, managed to surround himself with a team of, of like-minded individuals would you say that's a fair assessment I think it's a reasonable assessment <laughs> <laughs> but I do have a personal life <laughs> Yeah, part of that twenty four seven is at the theater and the opera. Oh, and, oh sure, sure. Yeah, but it's it's all it's all good. But I I, I love all that. I mean, yeah. I, I that's that's uh, I don't think of that as part of the job. I mean, yeah. I think of that as a recreation. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay, we we're going to get one more phone call in before the break. So let's go to Bob. Bob. Hello. Hello, Bob. Hi. Um, the question for Michael McRobbie concerns his vision for the internationalizing of the IU system. Uh, if you could discuss at some length what uh, that means. It means uh, two things in, in brief. Um, uh, the, f- the first is uh, that I, I think it's important that that more and more every one of our students as part of an IU education uh, be exposed to some global component of, uh, of their education. So, so for example, um, this could be a period of study abroad, a semester abroad. It could be more than a semester. Uh, it could uh, it could be um, uh, intensive grounding in uh, one or more languages. It could be uh, um, uh, education in uh, uh, the the culture of uh, some other uh, country or civilization um, at length, or it could be some combination of of all three. Now, this is actually going to be part of the general education curriculum that was recently approved by the Bloomington Faculty Council for the uh, Bloomington campus and there are similar programs on all the other IU campuses as well. So so this will become more and more a part of the education of an IU student. And why I think that's so important is there's hardly any profession or any business uh, in this country uh, that is not in some way affected by the flattening of the world, by the increasing uh, globalisation of the world, and I think it's it's vitally important for the the uh, very bright young students from Indiana and elsewhere that we educate here that they be given some exposure to what uh, globalization actually uh, means, and to give them some uh, some fluency and confidence in dealing with. Uh, issues to do with uh, foreign countries and, and foreign cultures and so on as well. So that's the first thing it means. And the second thing it means almost follows from that. Um, we need to uh, have uh, more relationships in place with some of the uh, some some of the major, I think, uh, countries that are that are growing rapidly economically and others as well, um, uh, in order to provide the opportunities for more and more of our students to spend periods of time um, studying abroad. I've said before that. Uh, that uh, we get um, more than two-thirds of our students come from just five countries, China, including Hong Kong, uh, Japan, Korea, Taiwan and India. Uh, but we, we don't send that many students to those countries. I think then there's great potential, I think, for us to increase the number of students we send to those countries. It's, it's harder and harder for us to have special relationships with the, the European universities. They're so saturated uh, with all the other universities who have relationships with them. Growing those is going to be hard, but there are, there are greater opportunities in the parts of the world that are expanding rapidly. So, so I think internationalization 
reflects that. And, and it, it also reflects the fact that we'll see probably a more international student body. I mean, diversity also, I think, includes greater international internationalization of our student body. And we may see a more, um, what can I say, a more international faculty as well. Um, it is the mm. case that I think it's, I've heard the figure of 20% of all faculty in this country come from overseas. And uh, so that, that phenomena, I think, will probably only but increase rather than decrease. All right, Bob. Thanks a lot for the call. Um, we've hit break time. The phone numbers again, 855-0811, 877-285-9348. Email address is noon at indiana.edu. We're talking with Michael McRobbie today. Michael will take over as IU's president on July 1st. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info WFIU is a media sponsor for the Bloomington Arthur Murray Dance Studio presenting Dancing with the Celebrities. It's based on the hit TV show Dancing with the Stars. The event features six celebrities from throughout the Bloomington community competing for their favorite local charities. And it takes place at the Buskirk Chumley Theater this evening from 8 to 10. More about this and many other events at WFIU.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I wasn't sure that was public radio there for a minute. <laughs> I like the choice of music. Yeah. I know. I've got some new producers in here. <laughs> Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. And our guest today, Michael McRobbie, interim provost of Indiana University, who will take over as the university's president on July 1st. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or send your email to noon at indiana.edu. I want to I want to return. Oh, go ahead, Mary Catherine. Well, I just I've but been... this is a kind of uh, beginning with the end. But when you and your wife Lori uh, accepted this immense challenge, how did you how do you look at it? I mean, this is um, is this something you look at as, as a long term thing, or do you look at it as something like when I accomplish X, Y, and Z, I will be done? Or you know, how do you how are you approaching this? Oh, I, I've said uh, publicly that. Um, I expect this to be my uh, my last uh, uh, position, my last uh, university appointment. I'm 56, and and uh, uh, that's uh, I've got a career that's probably about 10 years uh, long, and um, uh, I, I've committed myself uh, to the university for the rest of my career. All right, that's that's the answer I was looking for. Thank you. All right, we have a, our first phone call. John, go ahead. Yes, Mr. McRobbie. Congratulations, first of all, and welcome to Bloomington. I well, guess you've been in Bloomington. Welcome well, I've, to the, I've lived here for 10 years. <laughs> uh, Thank you. And I have uh, really two questions. I'll uh, express them and uh, then uh, get off the line so I can listen to your responses. Uh, they have in part to do with uh, hiring practices and employment practices and also with uh, community relationships. Uh, the first has to do with uh, the current trend towards outsourcing that has been been being pushed around the university a great deal. I'm kind of curious if uh, you're going to want to continue in that direction, or uh, you just mentioned that a university is not a corporation, and I, I wonder uh, what kind of reflections you might have on, on this practice of outsourcing and uh, privatization of uh, university employees that's been done. And then the other thing that uh, recently the uh, community has experienced the university being rather uh, uh, remote in regard to its uh, concern about historic buildings. Uh, a number of buildings have been either destroyed or slated for destruction. Uh, one of them almost in the stealth of night, a rather beautiful arts and crafts house on, uh, I believe it was Atwater or Third Street, one of the two there, that was just, uh, you know, almost overnight demolished uh, without any regard for uh, the uh, impact on the community or uh, historic concerns. 
So I'll just leave you with those two questions, and I'll listen for your answer. So, so let me – I'll deal with both of those. Um, as far as – as far as outsourcing is concerned, uh, I, I think the, the, the critical principle here is that the, the academic parts of the university can't be run like a business, but the business parts of the university should, by and large, be run as businesses. So that's a, that, that's a, a general principle I'd adhere to. So, so what does that uh, mean um, in more detail? Um, it, it means that uh, if there are services that we provide internally – uh, that that can be provided externally at major cost savings to the university with major benefit for the university in terms of uh, improvement in, in services, um, then they have to be considered very seriously provided that issues to do with um, any uh, dislocation to employees in the university and uh, uh, related financial issues are um, dealt with with uh, due seriousness and care and, and sensitivity. Uh, so, um, uh, so, so I, I think that um, we, we simply cannot hide from the fact that in um, the outsourcing of services can sometimes lie really major opportunities for the university to uh, um, identify new resources that can go towards the core mission of the university, which is education and research. Uh, the second point about historic buildings, um, there, there are procedures for determining what is and what isn't a historic building. I um, uh, have uh, a, a lot of uh, fondness for uh, great historical buildings and ensuring that they're appropriately preserved. And uh, one of the great things about the Bloomington campus and many of the surrounding areas is the historic uh, charm and beauty of it. Uh, but um, there's not a there's not a black and white distinction between what is and what isn't historic, what is and what isn't worth uh, preserving. There's never going to be uh, clear cut decisions that are unanimously agreed on by everybody as to which buildings should or shouldn't be put down as the university expands, and the university simply has to expand. Uh, the the size of the research enterprise in this university continues to grow. In fact, one of the problems we have is that is that uh, we are severely lacking in the space we need to really reach our full potential as a as a research university. So, um, I think one's going to see continued uh, growth uh, in the university. Um, uh, certainly during the period I'm presidency, because it's going to become one of one of my one of my priorities. And uh, in the same way that it was a priority for, for Wells, and I think it's been a priority for pretty much every president this university's ever had. Um, but that doesn't uh, release us from the duty of uh, uh, care and uh, responsibility um, in, in making these decisions and ensure that we have uh, maximum um, input from from all the um, affected uh, constituencies and those who, who um, have got opinions of the matter. All right. Thanks a lot for the answers to those questions and thanks a lot for the call. And I, I have, want to go back to uh, one of the seven areas of change that you mentioned uh, the last time I heard you speak publicly and that's the area of, of transformation and research and scholarship. And you mentioned the, the idea that uh, the future will focus more on interdisciplinary and collaborative intellectual directions. Uh, could you uh, expand on that a little bit? Oh, I, I think um, what, what you're seeing – is that um, more and more innovation is taking place in the sort of interstices of the disciplines. And, and this, is, this is actually not that recent a, a phenomena as well. But when you look at where other universities are investing, it's, it's, in, um, it, it's in the combination of disciplines working together to use, say, information technology to, to uh, help um, with the sequencing of the human genome. And that could never have been done. It's certainly not at the, at the speed it was done without massive use of um, uh, information technology and, and informatics. I mean, just, just to give you one example. So there you've got this, this really now what's become an intimate partnership between the life sciences and, uh, and informatics. And it's reflected up in Indianapolis um, in a new building that uh, combines uh, medical researchers and uh, IT people all working together and completely sort of commingled in, in, in the same building. And uh, you'll see another variation of that in the new Simon Hall building where you'll have uh, chemists and biochemists and physicists and biologists and microbiologists and and, uh, and others all working together um, collaboratively in, in sort of interdisciplinary projects. Um, and 
and it's it's reflected in what other great universities in the country are doing, and it's reflected in terms of what the funding agencies are funding, because because to them, uh, the, the the a lot of the major new discoveries are, are really happening at, in, in the in those interstices between between the d- disciplines, and. Um, uh, as opposed to necessarily in in the uh, in the disciplines themselves, which which are now you know far more established. I mean, the innovation and excitement and discoveries are coming coming when you have these fields starting to work together. Mm-hmm. Okay, want to go to the email? Let's go to the email first, and we have a phone call. Okay, well here it goes. <laughs> um, it asks, "What's your favorite restaurant in Bloomington?" Oh. <laughs> Be careful um, with this one. <laughs> there are many fine restaurants in Bloomington. Um, he says diplomatically. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll tell you three that that, uh, uh, and and no disrespect to all the other magnificent restaurants, but three that are particular favourites of of my my wife and I and, and our children. One is Talent, the second is Samira, and the third is the Mikado. All right, and then uh, the the writer also has a follow up. Is this from sure. one of the owners of one of those restaurants? I don't know. I don't know <laughs> from whom this came, but. Uh, the follow-up, and every hostess in Bloomington is probably going to listen to this answer. What is your favorite sweet treat? Well, I'm actually not a sweet person in the sense that I'm, I'm not, I don't have a sweet tooth at all. I, I, really, I really eat desserts. <laughs> I know that may, I'm reasonably unusual in that regard. Better but... serve fruit. Right. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> all right. Let's go to the phones now. And Roger. Roger? Uh, yes. Uh, thank you, Dr. McRobbie, for your initiatives and for listening. Um, Pleasure. It's encouraging that the 21st Century Scholars Program, I think you were saying, is serving uh, a lot of low-income and minority students. And I hope it's as massive as it sounds, because that's uh, something that the affordability issue has been very important in recent years. Right. And in internationalization, uh, similarly, not only visa and passport controls post 9-11, but uh, the wealth requirement, as some of us would describe it, is uh, of great concern. What can you do that's similar to the 21st Century Scholars Program that will open um, uh, participation to people who may not have the same kind of wealth as those who currently attend? Oh, well, um, as I said, we've put uh, about $10 million into, into five new programs, and uh, they they are um, a, a number of those are focused at uh, uh, people in general from low income uh, backgrounds. I mean, I, I think I think it is um, it, it is critical that we do all we can to ensure that an IU education remains affordable to all the citizens of the state. So that obviously means that people with uh, with good salaries, you know, pay for pay for uh, most of their expenses. But but for people with um, low incomes, their children, um, uh, if they if their children are bright and and of ability and and uh, can meet the the appropriate standards to get into IU, then it, it is a it is a it is a duty on us to ensure that we have the financial aid programs in place. To um, significantly assist them with their attendance at, at IU and and an uh, um, uh, IU education, we've got figures that actually show that that the average cost of an IU education has in fact fallen. Uh, if you take into account all of the financial aid that we've put into uh, assisting with the cost of an IU education over the last uh, three or four years, uh, but but we want to continue to do this. This mm. this um, this is a, a really critical. A critical thing for us. I mean, we we have to serve the the. We are about um, sort of impartially serving the the best and brightest students in the state. Well, specifically, isn't there a requirement that uh, a student from overseas has to have a fund oh. of twenty five thousand or so in reserve? I, I didn't realize you were talking about overseas students. I, I confess yeah. I, I don't know exactly what that uh, requirement is for overseas students. I mean, I could I could get you an answer to that and take that take that offline, but. Yeah. But uh, uh, that may be a government-imposed uh, requirement. Yes. I just don't know. Yes, and, and, I'm, and I'm hoping that IU will find some way to, um, to find those resources, uh, a fund that will be a revolving fund for such resources uh, if it is a federal requirement. If you'd like to give your uh, you know, name and some contact sure. details, sure. I'll, I'll see what sure. I can get for you on that one. Thanks. 
Okay. Thanks a lot for the call, Roger. 855-0811-877-285-9348 and noon at indiana.edu. Um, I want to go back a, a little bit to the life sciences because, uh, again, in the last presentation I saw you give, you, you talked about how you know, it's hard to compete with Stanford and, and Cal Berkeley and high technology because of Silicon Valley, but that there's no reason why – Bloomington, Indianapolis, Purdue can't compete on a very high level in terms of, of life sciences. Um, how, you know, how successful do you think we can be? What, what, can we be one of the top 25, one of the top 50? Oh, I think, I think being one of the top 25 is, is definitely within our grasp. I'm not quite certain if we'd be in that now. We may actually well be, depending on how you define it, in the life sciences. There are, from memory, something like... Um, uh, um, forgive me if I get this figure wrong, but it's but there are many there are many hundreds of thousands of jobs in the life sciences in Indiana already. When you look at uh, the uh, the biotech companies up at Warsaw, when you look at Eli Lilly and uh, and uh, the other big uh, pharmaceutical companies in in Indianapolis, when you look at Cook, uh, all the various Cook companies here in Bloomington and elsewhere in the state, uh, the number of people the life sciences type companies employ in the state is 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 really quite huge. Um, uh, I think the the what we've tried to do is to make a case for sort of unleashing the full power of what we can really achieve. You know, the, the, it's not as if one has to invest from the ground up. It's not like a greenfield site. We have you know, much, though maybe not quite all of, the infrastructure. We have uh, the core of the faculty and so on. So it's it's here is something to be built on. I noticed just this week the governor of uh, Massachusetts announced uh, a program to put a billion dollars into life sciences uh, research based on the uh, universities and, and uh, other institutions in Massachusetts. And and uh, I think Texas did this last year. Uh, California, of course, has got a series of big programs going on. Michigan did it some years ago. So uh, I think states, states understand just what an asset they have in their research universities uh, in this regard. And what we've tried to do and with our life sciences initiative, and we've made a start on it, we, we got some funding from the legislature and and uh, clearly it is going to be something we'll uh, be back um, uh, trying to make the case uh, uh, in, in uh, even more um, persuasive and uh, stronger form next time around. Well, I, I've got a couple of callers, but before that, I, w- I do want to follow up and, and ask for an evaluation of the legislature because the university did um, did have a lot of requests. Uh, you know, in, a, in a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being – Extremely happy with what happened. How would you? How would you rank yourself? Oh, I'd say probably about uh, about an eight, something like that. I think it's. I think uh, uh, seven to eight. Um, we, we let's see. We got about a three an average three point five percent increase in our overall operating budget. Uh, uh, that's one of the best we've had for a long time. Uh, we got uh, all of uh, our R and R funding, the, the the funding we use for repairs and rehabilitation. We had all of that um, uh, funded up to about fifty million dollars. We had uh, we've had three buildings funded, uh, or at least partly funded. One here, one in Indianapolis, one at uh, at uh, South Bend, and we got uh, fifty million dollars for for the life sciences, which will be used for. Um, uh, Projects uh, between the campuses. Um, uh, I think uh, I think we we did uh, we did really quite well, and and uh, we're, we're most grateful to the legislature and to the the political leadership uh, for uh, for all they did to, to support us. Um, it, it is certainly one of the best budgets we have had um, for a long time. I have to go right back to when I think I first arrived here to, to see a budget as good as what we've seen this year. Um, clearly in the life sciences and some of the other areas, um, the job is not done and, and we, we will be back, uh, try, as I said, trying to make that case um, even more persuasively next time. Okay. We have about three minutes to go, so let's go to Judy first. Judy? Hello. Uh, very much congratulations. And um, un- unfortunately, I think you covered very much of what I was going to ask. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I personally um, knew... Dr. Wells, and knew how brilliant and forward-thinking he was. Uh, and I believe that we now have a, a new president that's looking the same way. Uh, the thing I'm very interested in hearing is the funding. Um, you know, uh, Herman B. Wells had the golden touch, we might say. And I'm wondering how you're reaching out. Do you have many, many uh, corporations interested in funding for the life sciences? What's going on in that particular area? 
Well, well, thank you very much for those those kind comments. I, I, I we, when you look at where our funding comes from, it, it comes from four sources. It comes from the state government. It comes from the federal government through agencies like the National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health. It comes through tuition and it comes through private philanthropy. And I see the job of the president as ensuring that we maximise our ability to find funding from all four of those sources. And uh, that uh, that, may, and, and that that also means we have to sort of balance our efforts too. We can't sort of disproportionately pursue one at the expense of the others. But as I've said uh, many times in, in the 10 years I've been here, but certainly a lot more in the last two months, one of, the, one of the great glories of higher education in the United States is private philanthropy. There, there is nowhere else in the world where alumni have the level of affection and esteem and, and love for their institutions that they do in the United States. It really is remarkable. Uh, other, most other countries, probably all other countries in the world, uh, admire it and wish to emulate it, but it only exists here. And that is, that's a, a vital, important part of our future plans is that private support. All right. Thanks a lot for the call, Judy. And we have one last caller I think we can get to. Pam is next. Pam? Uh, hello. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, uh, Dr. McRobbie, welcome to the community. We're so, I was so happy to hear it's a job for life. That's great. Thank you. Love to hear, hear what you said about philanthropy, and I agree with Judy completely about Dr. Wells. My question is this. Uh, so appreciate your wife's service on the Middleway House Board, and I wonder if you, as president of IU, have any plans to encourage or to uh, increase community participation by IU folks. I used to work with the campus, and I found a very insular view about the community versus the campus, and I wonder if you have any thoughts about things you could do to make that even more productive and better for all of us. Thanks, Pam. We have about one minute. Uh, all I could say there is I, I think this is the most extraordinarily sort of integrated community in that regard. I, I have a lot to do with my, my children's swimming events. Both my uh, children or two of my children are on the swim team at, uh, at, at South, and, uh, and half the parents of the other swimmers are all members of the faculty at IU. <laughs> <laughs> So, so uh, I, I, I think the the the, um, the level of connection between the the university and the, and the community is is a is a very strong one here. There are probably some areas where it could be uh, could be stronger, but I've lived here for ten years and I I find it uh, almost seamless in some ways <laughs> the relationship between the two. Participation in community charities and organizations. There's a great amount of need out there, and you have a lot of talented, incredible folks. And we hope they come over, roll up their sleeves, and say we can make our community really even better. Well, I think my wife's been trying to do that yes, by example. <laughs> we appreciate her a lot. Right. Thank, you. Thank you. Thanks a lot for the call, Pam. Uh, Michael, thanks for being here with us today. Pleasure, Bob. Thanks. Thanks. We're, Catherine. We're, Pleasure. we're about out of time. Uh, we hope to have you back after July 1st. Absolutely. All My right. God, the time goes fast. Doesn't <laughs> it, it does. <laughs> it definitely <laughs> does. Thank you. Thanks very much. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Catherine Hageman, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and The Herald Times. 